Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is Norman Horn. And we have another episode where we are going to answer some questions that you've submitted to us or questions that you've kind of asked us um, along the way uh, by email or in our Facebook group. And uh, we want to we want to answer some questions. What are what are our opinions about these? So we have a number of questions here, and we're going to dive in uh, right away. So we have a question from the Facebook group, from a member of our Facebook group, which, by the way, we recommend that you uh, join. It is really awesome. We have some great discussion, and it is high quality because we filter things. <laughs> Very important part of the group, in fact. Yes. Some people complain, but most people love it. Yeah. So fantastic. question. I know everybody's dying to ask this because we're Christians and we're also libertarians. And this is one of those like personal issues that people want to know about. And that is the issue of recreational or medicinal use of cannabis products. So how do Christian libertarians view both medical and recreational use of cannabis products? Norman, what do you think? Well, first off, it's a, this is a super important question for libertarianism in general. Uh, and it's really a hallmark of libertarian thought from the beginning, uh, regardless of pretty much wherever you start off in libertarian thought we oppose the drug war. We oppose the uh, dictation of the government uh, as to what you can and cannot put into your body. Uh, whether or not you agree with the use of it as a as a, either on a moral basis or a practical basis at all, whether you think there's benefits or or detriments as a result of using it, we just flat out say as libertarians that the government has no right to tell you what you can and can't do with your body like that. Uh, as long as you're acting in a non-aggressive manner, we just say outright that the government nor anyone else can force you use physical force to tell you to to uh, tell you what you can and cannot put into your body. It's simple as that. What about if uh, someone lives in a state where it's illegal for now for recreational use? What, are, what do we have a recommendation there at all? Well, my personal recommendation would be that you pro probably shouldn't <laughs> simply on the basis that like uh, from a practical standpoint, you're probably better off uh, just just, um, you know, abstaining as it is. I will not deign, however, if you do have a, a medical need, uh, I would I would never try and, and dis dis dissuade you from trying to find a to find a way to make that work for you better. And I don't know what that would entail, but, um, but you know, I, I'm not going to ask you to just suffer, you know, silently because when there's something that would be available to you. Um, but you know, on, on just a pure recreational basis, I might recommend against it. <laughs> That's yeah. just my personal opinion there. <laughs> well, and you know, to bring up the illegality of it, it's, that means it's prohibited in certain States. And, you know, we probably should talk about the prohibition effects that it has for it to be illegal and that the, the actual problems that it creates, uh, in, in terms of quality and I mean, the, the side effects, if you will, um, well, and, and, and I love one phrase that I've heard uh, Lawrence Vance and other people use where, you know, the drug war is, you know, the, the cure is worse than the disease. Yeah. And, and and there's there's a whole lot of reasons for that. I mean, one is just the pure anti-liberty notion of it. That's that's one. And so it, it kind of conditions people into anti-liberty thinking. The second would be that uh, that it, it actually is, you know, prohibitive toward um, toward, toward practical uses that are known. Uh, and so, for instance, you know, the when cannabis is outlawed, that also just outlaws for for the all intents and purposes, all sorts of other hemp products. Uh, and this is this has actually been a, you know, a hallmark of American industry in the past. And this is basically non-existent. Uh, and there are reasons for that. We could that we, I mean, we could run a whole podcast on the history of, of uh, can cannabis uh, prohibition and whatnot. On the issue of prohibition, I know it's uh, kind of interesting for people to say that, well, you know, it's just a natural plant and why would God want us to not use it? And there's, there's kind of memes going around saying, you know, this is just natural and God would never, you know, prohibit us from, 
you know, in, in terms of like a natural law sort of perspective, uh, God wouldn't want us to, you know, not enjoy the things that are that are on his good earth. And it's probably not a great argument. One of the reasons for that is the very first prohibition in the scripture is to not eat from a tree. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's very helpful. And I, and I say that a little bit to be kind of funny. Yeah, but on the other cheap, hand, but it's still. but on the other hand, I don't think it's in a it, it's not a helpful argument to say, well, God wouldn't prohibit uh, marijuana because it's just it's just a plant. Um, there are a lot of reasons to be against prohibition. So let's be clear about that. Yeah, that's uh, true. But, well, and they're also they're poisonous plants. Too. Well, sure. I mean, poisonous berries that, you know, you eat them and you die. Yeah. And <laughs> so, we will talk uh, in a few minutes about uh, practical in terms of practical considerations that, you know, marijuana isn't really it may not be good for you. Yeah. Well, and 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 this actually kind of leads, I guess, uh, to a to another kind of tertiary point. Um, is it just because there might be immoderate uses of such a, of such a substance, and even some of these plants that might be poisonous in the concentrations that you find them in nature, uh, can be reduced down, can be researched and developed into actual like medicinal drugs, or you know this is this is actually how you know we have modern pharmacopoeia is is, is that we we researched herbs and t- and chemicals that come from plants and and nature in order to uh, in order to make something that's useful and for the human body or for for other for other types of uh, of practical applications and prohibitions literally work around the this this very fundamental thing that we are called to do as humans in in God's world which is to have dominion over it and use it <laughs> and so there are you know plenty of interesting uses for like obviously uh even even cocaine uh in certain um uh, dosages is a is a great painkiller, and it's used this way now. But we're not really pr- privy to being able to often use that because of prohibitions, and we're not privy to research that could potentially be going on because of prohibitions, and we're really the poorer for it. And so that's that's really unfortunate. Um, but f- I think the final thing we like Doug said that we probably want to throw out here is that like we're we're not going to be out, we're not out here to condemn those people who would choose to use it for a recreational purpose or or especially for a medical purpose but you do need to understand that there are risks involved in doing so and those may not be worth it you know in the same in the same way that you know in, uh a a overuse of alcohol causes drunkenness uh if you moderation is a good thing and and certain concentrations of chemicals do cause harm and they react with certain bodies differently than others so don't necessarily think that well this we're just giving you license to go out and do something that's not exactly what we mean here um that's it's really not the point either when it comes down to it so uh, just be aware that that's a thing <laughs> and and really use our argumentation as libertarians and as Christians to to really argue for the uh, the well, I guess you might say the dominion uh, mandate of the, uh, that God has given us, that there are things that, that we are called to go out and use uh, and we're to, to use properly. Uh, so hopefully, you know, in the future, we'll be able to, you know, elucidate those arguments ever the more in the church. And I think we're beginning to see that actually. And uh, you, you, I mean, even what is it? Sixty percent of the United States now is is pro legalization uh, and it seems like pro complete legalization. So I wouldn't be surprised if in the next five or in most 10 years that we would see, you know, the United States pretty much go complete legalization on, on the topic of cannabis. And really that's just, you know, we should be leveraging that to go against the entirety of the drug war because we're not just, you know, uh, against the drug war when it comes to cannabis, but against the drug war in total. And we want that to be abolished outright. You know, you mentioned that it's going to be maybe a decade and, you know, in the United States, marijuana, at least medical, if not just complete recreational use of it, will be completely legal and maybe even doesn't bear much of the stigma of of use as it does, although that probably will take, uh, you know, a couple decades to kind of outlive that. What I find interesting about that observation that sort of we kind of expect this to eventually be normal where it's where it's legal okay and i think that is one evidence and and this isn't really a point about pot but it's a point about culture and politics if we want to change the world culture is going to be the way we change it and the politics will more likely follow uh we certainly want the government to get out of the way of people being able to uh affect the culture in a certain way but even with even in spite of the drug war we have people changing their minds 
I know people who are hardcore prohibitionists uh, when I was, uh, I don't know, two decades ago when I was growing up. And they are now realizing that this is probably not a good idea. And so I see evidence of people's hearts changing and it had nothing to do with, oh, they legalized it. Oh, I guess that's okay then. It's not about that. It's about they see the effects of it and they change their mind. And sometimes change takes generations. But I don't know, this just seems like an example of one of those uh, politics follows culture. And uh, it's one of those things that we can change the world with ideas first. I agree with that. It's a good point. So our second question is from Philip via our Facebook page. Do you have any tips for someone trying to make the case for peace and the non-aggression principle to neoconservative Christians? I find that they are quite wedded to war and coercion and logical and moral arguments don't seem to really work. Much like logical economic arguments tend to fail with progressives. Amen to that. <laughs> so the core of the question is, do we have any tips for trying to make the case to somebody who's a neoconservative about peace and the non-aggression principle? I'll just start to answer this by saying appeal to their pro-life stance, because very likely if this is something you're running up against, you are dealing with somebody who's staunchly pro-life or that's what they allege. I would start with that and find ways to appeal to that because they may not care about quote unquote peace, but they do care about life and you can sort of get an inroads to there. What, what do you think about that, Norman? Oh, I think that's true. You can definitely like start talking about, well, so you, you agree that, you know, we shouldn't be, uh, that babies should not be aborted in the United States, right? You think that's a wrong thing to do. Well, yes, of course that's a bad thing. So if it is instead a bomb that is being dropped on a brown baby in Afghanistan, that is considered to be acceptable. And oh, yeah, but no, Norman, they could be terrorists. <laughs> they, Babies in the womb are not terrorists. terrorists. Gee, yeah. And that's, uh, but, but see, I think that's, you know, if they, it, at some point they're going to be almost beyond, uh, even convincing at that point. And, it, and maybe at that point, bringing in some of the, uh, more, I, I would like to I'd almost dare say the prophetic language that even Lawrence Vance likes to use at times in his um, uh, articles, which really just rain down uh, the good word of <laughs> of judgment on 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 warmongering peoples uh, that might be worthwhile at that point to kind of shock them out of that. Um, my hope would be is that, you know, that the the people that you're encountering are are at least somewhat susceptible to arguments about life. Uh, arguments from the scripture uh, that that you know would suggest that the um, that war is a bad thing, and the historical precedent against war that Christians have had, um, despite the of course the the known aberrations of that. Um, but I, you know, there's there's a variety of ways to do it, and but I would hope that there you know the some of the gentler arguments you could make would work in that regard. Another thing to approach this with would be, you know, I'm reading, I'm reading the question here as, as we're talking and, you know, make the case for peace. OK, so many conservatives, many neoconservatives, when you say that you are very much in favor of peace, that might inadvertently put you in a box that you do not belong in. Uh, it might bestow upon you in their minds uh, beliefs that bear little resemblance to what you actually believe. And in other words, they might think, oh, man, this guy's a pacifist. And you may not be a pacifist. You might just be like, hey, I'm for peace. Uh, I'm for peace and like avoid all conflict, uh, you know, in, in war and things like that. So don't put yourself in a box and, and be a, be attuned to how they might perceive how you're presenting your argument. Because I I mean, again, libertarians are we often we chuckle at, at uh, liberals thinking that we're conservatives and conservatives thinking that we're liberals because we make a consistent non-aggression argument. Um, and we make a lot of consistent arguments that they just find are on the quote unquote other side of the aisle. But we don't actually exist on their other side of the aisle. So be attuned to how you are making your argument. Make sure that they don't assume too much about your position that you don't believe. Well, granted, the left is just as hawkish as the right when it comes right down to it. Yeah. Um, but that reminds me of something else. It's okay to bomb other uh, bomb children in other <laughs> countries if you're a liberal. Yeah, as, they won't complain about the drone strikes and, on and populated by. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As long as the school is in a terrorist zone, then then it's appropriate to bomb. Yeah. 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 Of course. Or it's a wedding for that matter. Diss on Obama right there. Um, yeah. Well, another thing that, that kind of you reminded me of, Doug, right there was that um, sometimes these people are gunning for an idea of security. Um, and they, they think that, well, if we didn't do that there, then they'll then they'll be over here. Hmm. And if they are open to the possibility of that 
premise being wrong, um, then you begin to have another series of arguments you can make, which is, I mean, very simply, and we, we kind of know this as libertarians, that, that the war on terror, for instance, doesn't make us safe. It's not helping at all. It's and empirically it's empirically yeah, demonstrated. Empirically false. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not that, just a that, theory. <laughs> yeah. And, and thus, you know, one could one could truly make the argument that, look, you know, it's interventionism that breeds terrorism in a way that that uh, you do not seem to be acknowledging. So using the blowback arguments and whatnot, I mean, it's basically using standard Ron Paulian type uh, mm -hmm. argumentation there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we we know from that, that experience back in 08 and, and 12 that, of course, it didn't seem to work back then. But maybe just maybe now that we've gone through, what, 12 or 16 years of this at this point um, of war. War, which is unbelievable uh, when you when you kind of reflect upon it that this is the longest lasting war in American history uh, that that maybe this is a bad idea. <laughs> no kidding. So yeah. you know you can you can approach it from there as well. I think that might be that that has the potential to be successful. But my hope would be again that if you if you're talking with Christians, you know appeal to their theology. My goodness, I mean if if that's if. If these are reasonable Christians at all, then hopefully we can appeal to their theology uh, as much as their um, that evident reason part as well. Yeah, and then we're gonna have to cue the uh, if you want to deal with the theology part because they have objections such as well Jesus overthrew the money changers and so Jesus therefore was not uh, nonviolent, et cetera, et cetera. You're gonna have to go to some of our other episodes, which yeah, um, right. <laughs> we're gonna have to talk about that a different time. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Um, that you know that, that that's a it. that's a very uh it's yeah i think it does too um it, we could have an entire discussion on this an entire episode on this and that hopefully gets us started in the right direction thank you for the question uh from daniel on our facebook page as well my hypothesis is that most christians espouse non-libertarian political philosophies because they believe taxation is a non-violent function of statecraft if this linchpin fell their philosophies would become libertarian so what are the factors that inhibit Christians from recognizing the coercive nature of taxation? And is this important to address? What are the factors that inhibit Christians from recognizing this? Uh, I think the devil is blinding their eyes. Uh, <laughs> that's my funny answer. What do you think, Norm? Daniel, I'd say you have a very good point uh, to make here. Namely, that if you can dispense with the notion that taxation uh, is, is nonviolent, then all sorts of things that the government do, which have to be supported by the act of taxation, uh, be, start becoming more suspect. Even those things that might be somewhat considered, quote, quote, good, uh, because they are supported by evil means, uh, we are required as Christians to say, well, shall we do evil that good may result? By no means. Uh, so there's there is a strong sense in which if you could make that argument successfully, um, that you begin to whittle down against the entirety of the state apparatus, which is why, and to a to a grand extent, and and not just not for just for this reason, but because it is true, we emphasize that taxation is theft, uh, and so yeah, you you know how to do that is a is a whole other story. <laughs> uh, I. I I would say that you know we've we've argued in a lot of different ways on uh, on the website and in our podcast here that this is indeed the case. Taxation is theft, um, and you know you'll find all sorts of things on the website for that. But let's give a I guess a few kind of um, bullet points here on how to on how to go with that. One is that you should you should remind your your uh, your interlocutor, the person you're arguing with, that. Morality does not change for someone if they uh, don a uniform or have some sort of privileged position. Uh, that is to say, all humans are morally equal uh, or rather are equally responsible for the moral law. And so that is to say, one cannot be made exempt just because they have a don, don in a uniform or they have a, a position that's powerful. Uh, they are not exempt from the commandment that says, thou shalt not steal. Uh, and if that's the case, suddenly, you know, you begin to, again, whittle down that philosophy. So I would say that, you know, that's probably a great place to start and see how well someone responds to that. If that if that goes well, then you might also talk about, you know, First Samuel and when Israel asked for a king and, uh, you know, kind of responding to this is what, what Samuel says. This is what's going to happen if uh, if you uh, reject the rule of God and it's all these bad things, right? <laughs> and, and amongst those are taxation. And that was God's reluctant 
okay, if you really want this, this isn't best for you, but if you really want it, all right. This wasn't the original plan. Yeah, exactly. The God literally says to Samuel right there is that remember that when they're asking them, when they're asking you to give them a king, they are not rejecting you, Samuel. They are rejecting me. So it's pretty categorically clear right there that that is not something that God just outright wanted to do. Uh, he, he intended to be the absolute king over Israel in that regard. And, you know, and even though the, the you know, king, the, the the um, monarchical theology that sort of developed in the Old Testament as a, you know, kind of post uh, the, the you know, king being established there, you know, God is still acknowledged as the the, the great high king. Uh, and you'll see this in the Psalms and whatnot. Um, but it's it's still a bit of an aberration from what was intended. You know, one of, one of the things that's behind this question is what are the inhibiting factors for people kind of accepting this or understanding this? And I mean, to be honest, I think when you tell somebody taxation is theft and they haven't even considered this in, in, in a way, they may even sort of be against taxation uh, generally and be kind of like, yeah, we're overtaxed or be, you know, be, be against the kind of taxation that we kind of have in our country today. But when you say that taxation is theft, it's a moral category that has not been considered. And that opens up a whole can of worms and people don't like whole cans of worms unless they're ready to engage questionable things or ready to have their assumptions questioned. So when you come against people's assumptions about just normal society, they're going to be like, what? And I can understand that. I mean, I don't, I'm not really sure if I ever heard about taxation as theft before I was interested in libertarianism, but I think I would have that sort of like, oh, come on, that's an extreme view. And it's unfortunate <laughs> that it's an extreme view. It's an unfortunate that it's it's relegated as an extreme view because it is actually a consistent moral position. Now, one of the things that Friedrich Bassiat talks about in the law is that people can come together and create, you could call it a pact, uh, he, he was kind of talking about the formation of a government and say, well, we together can protect each other and set up and structure society in such a way that we will contribute to our own well-being. OK, so you can, in a sense, justify, OK, but we need to fund that. We got to pay the police to do the police things. We got to pay the fire department to do the fire department things. Leave aside for the moment that there are alternatives that are that do not require the state. But just imagine, you know, 500 people, you know, getting together. I mean, we're dealing with two, 200 years ago. They are forming small communities in the not so wild west or Midwest or whatever. And so they're forming communities and they need to come up with a way to to protect themselves against against things. You know, we're 200 years later and it's become a behemoth. It's really, really out of control, which is another reason why taxation just enables the kind of statism that you see God against in the scripture very adamantly. But it's not so far fetched to be like, well, we kind of, you know, our, you know, a couple generations ago, they decided that we wanted to get together and they formed these things, police and, you know, laws and civil governance and all of this other stuff that they formed that. And that didn't seem so far fetched because they were just trying to protect each other and look after one another. And of course, that was, you know, millions and millions of hundreds of millions of people ago uh, because they weren't societies weren't that big. It doesn't seem like such a stretch to be like, well, that's just where we are. And so when you challenge people by saying, well, taxation is theft, well, they may not like taxation or their level of taxation, but to call it theft just is a, is abrupt. And I'm not saying that, it, obviously I agree with, with the statement, but that is probably one of the factors in recognizing that they don't see it as coercive because it's been around for so long. And with that, with, with few exceptions and pockets of, you know, revolt and, and uh, revolution, um, people don't, people just kind of accept it. Taxation is a thing. And now the fight isn't really about taxation's existence, uh, especially the income tax existence since for, for almost a hundred or over a hundred years now, nobody's fighting against that. We're fighting against how do we spend the money? Where does that get allocated? And that is where Bastia talks about, um, you know, there, there's three positions. The few plunder the many, everybody plunders everybody or nobody plunders anybody, which is but I would say the libertarian view. So we're leading to the point where everybody plunders everybody. We're all about how much can we take from the government because, oh, taxation is just assumed. And it really is not good for society because now we're not talking about how to give. We're and, and support one another and find ways to come together. 
which, you know, in good faith, I'll just recognize that, okay, people formed small governments uh, back then because that's what they wanted to do. They just wanted to protect one another, protect life, liberty, and property. Uh, now it's all about how do we take, how do we get more from the government or how do we get more from the government? Maybe not for me, it's for the poor. Uh, and so, but, but, but it changes the attitude. Now we're all about what can we take from others? So now we're at everybody plunders everybody. And that's, uh, that's an unhealthy way to, to look at it. So I, I hope that that's a long way of answering. That's probably why people are kind of against it because they don't really think through, well, how did this all begin? You know, I was at a point in my libertarian journey that, or, or my political faith journey that I wasn't willing to be like, okay, I'm not quite sure I agree with everything I was taught about how government was formed and, you know, the formation of a quote unquote Christian nation, which is what I was taught growing up. Um, so let me, let me just kind of investigate this myself. Well, I, I've, this is where it's led me. I'm part of the Libertarian Christian Institute now, and we promote free society, not a, um, a society that's dictated through, through government. So anyway, that, that sort of a long, long way around the question. Uh, it might take a psychologist to really kind of dig in and say, well, here's what's inhibiting this person in particular from accepting this. Um, I, I think part of the solution to this is asking questions. And maybe Socratic method might be in order where you ask questions of the person to kind of get to the bottom of like, well, why do you believe that? And what justifies this? Like, that doesn't make sense. Pointing out inconsistencies and kind of walking it back a little bit. Well, if we're going to go psychological for a second here, I think there's probably one one piece that we haven't mentioned yet, and that's that uh, there is an sort of a, a deep held notion by a lot of people that the government is there keeping me safe. And there, so you might say that the only way that that can happen is if everybody else has to pay for it. <laughs> right. So it, it's a, it, that may be a sort of a deep seated psychological issue as well, but you know, to, yeah. to maybe to then to, to defray that you could probably say something to, to the effect, are, are you not responsible for your own personal life? Like that's, Personal responsibility is a hallmark of a free society. Yeah, no, I would even I would even actually push that a little bit further and make a, a little bit more positive claim that we are in some way obligated to our neighbor. And I don't mean obligated legally in the form of taxation, but obligated in a moral sense to look out for other people around us. Um, that is a Christian claim. Uh, I would not say that, you know, that's why yeah, I'm that's a not a libertarian claim. No, that's you. that's part of the Christian claim. And I would actually make that strongly. But here's the thing. If I make that claim. We're back to the question of does legality follow from, you know, kind of an is ought. I think that is true. We are obligated. I think all humans should be in some sense obligated to look out for one another. Yeah. The, the question you then could be asked, like, do I have if I feel that obligation, do I have the right to force someone else to supply the means to make it happen? And not only that, let's say you let's say you're successful in accomplishing that. You've somehow maybe you get elected and in your district or maybe your mayor or whatever, you you enact some law that says that, you know, you can be I mean, this is like the last episode of Seinfeld. That there was a law in a city where they just stood by and watched somebody get mugged and then they got thrown into prison. Let's say you do that. Uh, and so uh, you're now morally obligated and you force other people to be morally obligated to help those who are in need. OK, have you really done anything to help those in need? Well, maybe on the surface, maybe from, you know, from time to time, but is it really creating a better society where people are feeling obligated? Because it's one thing to obligate other people. It's another thing for them to, in their heart, be changed to, to do this on their own. Yeah, well, to always have the threat of force on top of it just doesn't seem to be, it's a counterintuitive notion oh, when, goodness, you, when you start yeah. thinking about it. It starts bringing in cognitive dissonance. You know, am I going to be made into a needy person by getting thrown into prison uh, for not uh, not fulfilling the obligation to help somebody else or something to that effect. It's like that, this starts getting it's confusing just to say it, let alone try and enforce it. Right. Oh, one. And yeah. And we'll just uh, let me finish this with maybe an analogy relating to parenting. So one of the things that I'm learning as a parent of younger kids is that there are times where I just want them to obey and they are just, you know, they're delayed because they're slow that day or they're just they're in a bad mood or they're sleepy or hungry or something like that and always i just want hungry. them to obey yeah, always it's, it's always hungry right so i just want them to obey but here's the here's the problem if they simply obey okay there's that immediate outcome but do i really just want them to be obedient 
as a real parent really wanting the best for my children and as a real human really wanting the best for society, do you really want people who are just obeying laws or do you want people whose character is formed? I do not think that laws will, in the long run, change the character of a nation or of a people group. And I think that through the through a free society where people are actively looking out for one another without needing to, it's a far better society. I mean, really, ask you, progressive friend, maybe you stumbled across this podcast. Do you really want people just obeying the law and being good Samaritans, or do you really want them to be good Samaritans? There you go. Another question from Daniel on Facebook, a different Daniel from the previous one. Can libertarianism become an idol? If so, how can we libertarian Christians be sure that we're not putting too much focus on our politics and not enough on Christ? That's an amazing question. I love it. Uh, what do you think, Norm? Can libertarianism become an idol? It's almost rhetorical. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that that is, that is possible. Uh, as it is entirely possible to make all sorts of things in our lives out to be idols when we begin to place more importance upon them than our relationship with with Christ. That the certain okay, so we'll we'll admit it as a possibility. Uh, I would like to think that because of the concordant nature of how libertarian ideas uh, coalesce with Christian um, with Christian ethics in so many ways that so long as one doesn't look at it as the, being essentially the sole the sole focus of christian ethics uh that it will be very difficult to make it into an idol um so that's a, that's probably a good thing um but if you begin to find yourself you know uh you know, going going to Rothbard before you go to to Jesus, uh, then you know, or or start saying you know a few hail Mises every day or something like that. Um, that that might say that you're in a, in a bit of a pickle. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. I, I you know, but I, I find that to be probably a little unlikely. Um, yeah. I, if anything, you know the 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 big uh, bugaboo from a lot of non uh, libertarian. Christians seems to be more that they they do imagine libertarianism to be a con, like some sort of all encompassing worldview, and the fact is is that it isn't. Uh, and as long as we're kind of recognizing that, you know, from both a high a high level perspective and in the nitty gritty details about why we um, are Christians first, of course, then I think we're going to be okay. There is one other piece of the puzzle here, and I think that that's has to do with electoral politics. You know, again, as a as we're five hundred one c three, therefore we we never endorse a political party or any candidates. But I will uh, sort of throw this out there, and that's that electoral politics has a very limited has a very limited scope into what it is able to change. And it also has a nearly unlimited scope as to what it can corrupt. Uh, and so that would actually be, I think, a, a, a very uh, apropos word to you that if you're that, that really don't trust in electoral politics, the, it's a lot easier to start putting your hope in a prince than it is to, I think, make libertarianism out into an idol. Um, so I, I think that might be actually, you know, an, an additional word. Um, I'm, I'm far more concerned, I think, with um, the way that uh, in general, American, and speaking to this from it as a kind of American-centric perspective here for a second, I'm more concerned oftentimes with how uh, Christians often laud, um, laud their leaders and and pay more attention to you know Amer uh, american uh, american leadership and power than they uh, than they are uh, paying attention to the philosophies that they hold and whatnot and i think they probably make those people out more into idols than um than their, their philosophies and case in point yes it is sarcastic but you'll see out there you know these uh, allusions to like you know god emperor trump and things like that this literally is said and yes it's kind of said in jest but it kind of uh is a it it kind of indicates something deep inside about where their loyalties really lie you know i think in terms of an idol uh, I often really refer to the Tim Keller kind of definition of an idol as making something that is good an ultimate end in and of itself. And I think that speaks to a little bit of what Norman said is like libertarianism not as libertarianism is not an all-encompassing life philosophy. And if you treat it as such, and I'm not saying that those who actually treat it as such are doing this, but as a Christian, if you are treating that as dominant over your Christian thinking, and it's possible to do that in certain areas and not really kind of overall think of it that way. 
um, then you you might be guilty of it. I don't think of it of it as like you've made libertarian the god you worship. If you become too obsessed with political solutions as the thing, the things that which need to be done above all else in order to achieve a more free society, then perhaps you're spending too much time worried on that, focusing on that. And again, I'm not saying that those things are unimportant pursuits, but how do we make sure, this is kind of the heart of the question, if we're libertarians and Christians, how do we make sure we're not putting too much focus on, on our politics and not enough on Christ? It could be argued, and this is sort of the Anabaptist argument, that we just are going to be, you know, not involved in politics, you know, electoral politics, and we're going to change the culture and be you know we're going to we're going to be hard working people and we're going to have good morals and and I don't want to overstate or misrepresent an anabaptist position but the idea there is that we are going to be witnesses to Christ and to the peaceable kingdom and so forth and we're just going to ignore politics and electoral politics maybe i can kind of see that as as a as a form of action i think it's totally fine if you want to elect not to vote uh and so it is possible that we could be too politically focused and not enough focused on Christ and culture. And that's a kind of a pious way of saying it. It's kind of like, oh, I'm going to focus on Jesus. Um, that's not what we mean. Uh, it's not what I mean. But when we say we're going to focus on Jesus or focus on the kingdom, you know, Scott McKnight wrote a book called Kingdom Conspiracy, and he he's not a libertarian, I don't think. And he, he might be friendly toward us in a sense. But he says, you know what? To actually live the kingdom, you don't need the state. This is not, you don't, it doesn't require it. And he was making that statement in a book that wasn't really about freedom and politics or anything like that. It was all about what does it look like to be the church, the local church, engaged in culture. I would recommend that book as a way to kind of dig into what does it mean to focus on Christ. So, yeah, I think it can become an idol to some extent. It's kind of hard to do that in the way that Norman described. Like, it's really, it doesn't fall under the thing that we worship, if you will. But, I, you know, anything can become an idol because anything can become what we what we obsess over. And yeah, I just think it's a lot easier to start, you know, gunning after uh, politicians and, and those sorts of leaders. Those are, I think you're going to find a lot easier of a time making, seeing that out as an idol than, uh, than, than the yeah. philosophy itself. Yeah, and so if somebody, say on the left, kind of accuses of, us of idolatry uh, of our libertarianism, you know, if hey, if you're accusing me of of being obsessed with peace and cooperation and people actually getting along rather than finding ways to coerce one another into their own visions of society, okay, fine. But that's fun. the <laughs> former is great. The latter is malevolent. Right. Yeah, so exactly. The, and the, who's the idolater there? Well, and do you yeah. know what the actual idols were representing in the Bible? States? Yeah. I don't yeah. know. It just to me, it seems like the idolatry, which is unwitting. I don't think anybody, nobody is going to admit, oh, yeah, I'm an idolater. Uh, I worship <laughs> non I worship this non God thing in my life. No one knows that. That's that's something we don't pay attention to. If I'm being. Uh, if I'm putting something as an idol, I don't quite notice it. I need someone else to tell me this. So this is this is what we tell the left. You're making an idol of the state. You just don't realize it. And hey, you know, it can work both ways, I suppose. But that's the state is actually an idol in the scripture. I think yeah, we've had think, enough on that topic. Yeah, I think we've had enough on that topic for now. Yeah. So, um, so <laughs> there's the, probably more we could say, but oh my goodness, I mean, we we go over this a lot. I know uh, there's over, but now we're at uh, addressing it directly. So, great question. So the next question is from the Facebook group, and I wrote it down as, hey, it was asked to the general group, but I want to answer it uh, from the Libertarian Christian Institute uh, and some, some, uh, some of our thoughts on this. Since God created us and as creator by default, he is also the owner. Then why do some libertarians say we own ourselves? Now, I don't know if this question was aimed at kind of a gotcha. It was kind of written that way. I think it was more in good faith, like, hey, it does seem to be a conflict. So the concept here is God owns us. Which I would accept on some level. Um, I mean, we're, we're dealing in metaphors and language here. But if God owns us, because God created us, then how can we say as libertarians that we own ourselves and we can do whatever we want with our bodies and that we, that ownership is something that we can make a claim of, for instance, that which we you know put our labor to? I think this can be answered relatively simply, um, and that's that, okay, first off, as you said, God's claim of ownership upon the universe itself is because he created it. But it is also because of God's claim of ownership, because he created it, that we cannot claim ownership of, above other people. Yeah. 
And so, and so as a result, when we say we own ourselves, that's not necessarily like in relationship to God in so far in as much as it is with relationship to other humans. And if we try to use, well, God owns us as some sort of means of then saying, well, then that means that I, as I don't know, uh, some, uh, with some special relationship to God get to dictate over you, then you're actually perverting the very argument itself. Uh, because God's claim, it means precisely that no one can own anyone else. Uh, that's, that's really, I think the crux of it right there. Involuntarily. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I suppose we could, if we want to go into the idea of, you know, voluntary servitude or something like that, sure. that would be another thing entirely. Yeah. But that's not really relevant here. It's yeah. a, in the fundamental way in which one owns oneself, yeah. uh, as we describe it in libertarian philosophy, this really has not much to do with the way that God owns everything because like that's like a different level entirely. You think it's like a category <laughs> mistake? I think, yeah, it's a mistaken category for the most part. I mean, you can kind of see the metaphorical sense in which this works itself out. And I think Bob Murphy actually does done a pretty interesting job of discussing this uh, in some of his work. But then it, like, it, it, then we just get down to uses of language. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why, well, self-ownership, does it's, it's, uh, it doesn't make any sense because God owns us and thus, you know, you can't own yourself. Well, wait a sec. That's, yeah, it's a difference in the way that we're using words here. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. So it's a category difference. Yeah. And, and I use the word, I often think about the word agency uh, when I deal, when I think of how do individuals act, you know, people talk about, you know, the left talks about social sins and things like that. And I don't want to get into that in and of itself. But when I talk to people about individualism, I think about agency. And then that um, Norman is not, Nor Norman's in charge of his own faculties. And Norman's wife is in charge of her own faculties. And likewise, I'm in charge of my own faculties. And I realize that there are theories about how we interact and what we're in control of. And are we, you know, how biologically uh, predisposed we are to act in a certain way based on evolution or whatever. I mean, I get all that. But for me, it all comes down to agency. I am in control of my actions. I am responsible for my actions. In that sense, I own who I am, what I do. You may not agree with a property rights outcome of that, but that in and of itself does not conflict. It is definitely not contradictory to me also saying God created the universe and therefore owns the universe. I don't even see how they're on the same level. Yeah, uh, they're not. So, they're just not. I mean, <laughs> that's right. I think well, it's a bug. It's a, it's a red herring argument, I think, that that uh, that an anti-libertarian would say, you know, might bring yeah. up. Well, and I, and I think the person asking the question and generally it, it, as an intra-libertarian Christian argument, it, we're talking a little bit more philosophically. Yes. On the other hand, there is the type of argument that is made that is a moral claim that, oh, well, you don't own yourself. And and again, I'm going to I'm going to allude to this without being direct here. You don't own yourself. Therefore, you can't make that decision because God owns everything. That issue, if you're going to read between the lines here a little bit, we will deal with in a, in a future uh, episode. But that is a moral claim that you are making. When you do that, you are declaring to somebody, I want to have agency or I want to have authority over you through my laws, which which can lead down some roads that we don't want to go. Well, and, and yeah. And, and again, the, like the problem is that you do not have that authority. Like you, you cannot make that claim. Like it, it becomes inherently, you know, you're, you're, it's performative contradiction. This is why the left doesn't, this is why the non-Christian left doesn't want Christians <laughs> to be in charge of government. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> because we are making, if we make that claim and, and again, I think it's totally consistent to say we're going to make that claim, but this is also why I'm a libertarian. If we make that claim, it's not to go too postmodern on everyone here, but it is a power claim, a power over somebody we're, we, we advocate avoiding that. Yeah. Okay. So category error, it doesn't really conflict. Um, maybe one simple theological way to say it is we are stewards of that, which we've been entrusted. And that includes our faculties. If you want to call it ownership, that's just a philosophical way of talking about it. It's really stewardship rights. If you want to think a little bit theological. Yeah. So the final question is something a little bit more personal, but it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, we like these. It's a good one to end on. Who are your favorite theologians? Thanks, Samuel Sands, for asking that question. <laughs> it's Doug, who are your favorite theologians? 
I'm sure you got a bunch. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Can well, you limit I, it to like three? Can I limit it to three? That's really <laughs> tough. Well, I'd have to start off with Karl Marx. Just kidding. Oh, yeah, just yeah, just yeah, kidding. Um, oh, oh, we're recording. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I bet most people are going to guess that I would probably put N.T. Wright on top of on top of the list. Uh, N.T. Wright or Tom Wright, he helped me. And this is before I read any of his books. I found some of his uh, sermons back in probably like 2004, 2005. And he helped me rethink the concept of heaven, the afterlife, and how do we view God's kingdom? You know, just to say in, in a short way, it was the first real exposure I had to first century Jewish way of thinking that I didn't get. And this was uh, this was pre-seminary for me, but post Bible college. And it was really enlightening, very refreshing. The British accent always helps. If you're an American, it's always some weird. I, I don't know. I have, you know, a weird uh, affinity for British accents. Yeah. So N.T. Wright would be the first one. So Norman, what would be your top theologian? Uh, for for me, I'm gonna let's let's appeal to some of my own denominational history. Being a Church of Christ kid, uh, I'm a huge fan of David Lipscomb, uh, who is one of our uh, major figures in the Churches of Christ in the 19th century. Uh, he was he's the namesake of Lipscomb University. He is a, he is a terrific guy from a lot of different perspectives. A uh, great thinker. Um, not only was he just amazing as a thinking theologian uh, and a minister. But he was also one of uh, you might even call proto libertarians. Um, made some amazing arguments. Uh, and that that uh, I, you've, if you've read libertarianchristians.com for a while, you've probably heard me quote him before. Uh, he wrote, wrote a book called On Civil Government that's terrific, uh, and it's it's just a it's an amazing piece of of theological literature, uh, and and I think he's really underappreciated by the like the libertarian community, uh, and you know those of us who are Christians may know a little bit about him, but a lot of people don't, and so I, I want to keep bringing him back uh, as much as I can. I'm really happy I recently got a uh, this is sort of a side note here, but I recently was able to acquire. The uh, roughly complete Gospel Advocate series scanned in PDF form, uh, which he was the editor of, is a Gospel Advocate was a, a Church of Christ journal, um, which was a major way in which communications happened in, in the 19th century. And, uh, and so I was able to acquire roughly, I guess it was, it was in the late 1850s up to 1930, uh, all of these scans. And I'm really excited to be able to pour through these and, and now that they're text searchable and whatnot, cause there's no way I'm going to read, you know, 80 years worth of lit, but I definitely want to, uh, go through it and figure out like, what are some of the th key things that I want to pull out and kind of highlight, uh, from his thinking about, uh, theology, about the state. And various things like that. There's just so much cool stuff. It's a treasure trove of lit, and uh, I'm just really, really pleased with the gentleman who uh, who had put it all together. So I, that's sort of a way long way of saying that he's probably one of my favorites. It's kind of hard to pick and choose, though. <laughs> I'm sure. Do you have another one, Doug? You want to get to? Yeah, I mean, everybody hears me talk about Greg Boyd a lot, and Greg Boyd's a pastor, but he is also a a theologian. Um, his sort of magnum opus, if you will, uh, from 2017, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, was long anticipated and a very successful book for Fortress Press. So he and and it's it's 1,700 pages, um, or 1,400 pages actually. The, the reason for that, um, Myth of a Christian Nation, uh, Greg Boyd wrote that back in 2004, and Myth of a Christian Nation is a book that every Christian should read, even if they aren't ever going to become a libertarian. Greg Boyd uh, told me personally when I met him at a conference that a lot of libertarians tell him they love his book. So if you're a libertarian and you haven't heard of Myth of a Christian Nation, Greg Boyd uh, does not claim to be political at all. He has been on this podcast uh, to talk about crucifixion of the warrior of God. But I, I think the reason that I would put him up there is not just because of that book, but also because of the way he thinks about human free will and the nature of the future and how do we conceive of viewing, how would we say, a proper universe where God has set it up so that we that love is truly possible and how we can love God truly from our hearts freely uh, without uh, interfering with human free will. I realize that gets into some deep theological weeds, but uh, I would just say that he's helped me think about it in such a way that I feel like it comports well with libertarian thought. 
he and Tom Wright have both uh, helped me think and rethink the nature of God. What does it look like to to understand who God is and God's essential character? That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think I'm for my second. I want to bring up a guy who only is he's man. He's been a huge influence on on me over over time, and he recently passed away. And that's R.C. Sproul. Doctor Sproul was a uh, like a, just a uniquely gifted man in the scriptures and as a communicator, uh, I found so much benefit from, uh, from reading his material. Uh, I, I would actually credit going through as a teenager, his, um, uh, the consequences of ideas series as one of the seminal moments for me as to, uh, in my intellectual development, uh, it really sparked in me an interest in philosophy. Um, and that was, that was a really big deal for me at the time. And, uh, I suppose, you know, that, uh, that I didn't, I haven't kept up with him, uh, in the last couple of years as well as I probably could have or should have, but I've read, you know, Ligonier Ministries material for a long time and, uh, read a number of his books and of course, number, many, many of his articles. I, I just find, you know, he's, a, he's just a wonderful guy and, uh, and, and oh, by the way, his grandson is a hardcore libertarian. He's uh, a, a great guy too. Uh, and and I, I just can't really say enough about RC as a, as just a such a great a, a, such a great influence upon you know American Christianity. And uh, just even if you're not reformed, like he's so terrific to to hear from. So I definitely recommend RC whenever you get a chance. What a what a terrific man and and a life well lived. So you know blessings to him and his family, of course. Yeah. So that wraps up uh, another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, uh, where we respond to several of your questions. If you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question for either a future episode or just you want us to answer the question by email, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can find us on Twitter at LCI Official. You can also find us on Facebook, Libertarian Christians. You can join our Facebook group on Facebook. And of course, you can go to our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thank you for joining us on this slightly longer episode than normal, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Thank you.